0: Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be approved, thoroughly furnished to every good work. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open the Word of God this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, that we are prepared to study God's Word so that we can assimilate it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to make it a part of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your Word, that we are confident that it is your Word, that you, the eternal God, who has existed for All eternity, there never was a time when you did not exist. That you who are so far above us that we can never grasp fully who you are, that you have revealed yourself to us. And not only have you revealed yourself to us, you have revealed yourself to us in a way that that we can understand and you have given us the Holy Spirit to help us understand your word that we can apply it in our lives. Father, help us to understand that there is nothing more important in this life than to know your will and to do it. And now, Father, as we... Uh, fellowship around the teaching of Your Word this morning. We pray that we can understand these things, see how they relate to our lives, that we can grow and advance in spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been studying in the Gospel of John, and in the last few weeks, as we have studied Jesus' discourse and encounter with the Pharisees in John chapter 5, we've seen that they've challenged who He is and His claims to deity. And in that process, we saw that Jesus in his claim to deity had to, or was questioned by the Pharisees to validate his authority. We saw then that Jesus, rather than appealing to some external authority, which would be the case with us, and which is typical, the way, a typical way in which most people handle things and try to prove the Bible by appealing to reason or experience, to some sort of logical argument, Jesus takes His stand solely upon the Scriptures because as the Word of God, they are the self-authenticating Word of God. They carry their truth and veracity within them, their own authority. So as believers, when we are engaged in any sort of uh, conversation with an unbeliever, we need to realize that, that as we have studied, that if we uh, try to... uh, Capitulate to their argument or compromise with them in some way by saying, well, let's appeal to some independent authority such as reason or experience in order to validate the Scriptures, that in essence what we have done is to compromise the very essence of the authority of Scripture in the process. We have said, okay, we're going to take your concept of truth and proof and we're going to utilize that as the basis for proving God's Word. Jesus did not do that. He told the Pharisees that... They rejected at the very core the testimony of Moses and the prophets for if they knew Moses, they would know that Moses testified about who he was and that at the very core of their thinking they had already rejected Moses. Well, that brings us to a very important topic, I think. That is the issue of how we got the Bible. I thought that since we had addressed the issue of the self-authenticating veracity of Scripture, that we would stop and... Take a couple of Sundays, perhaps, to look at this question of how we got the Word of God. Many times people ask the question, well, how can we really trust the Bible? How do you know this? Well, primarily, we know this because of the self-authenticating authority of Scripture. We don't know it because of some external authority. If Jesus Christ and God are the highest authorities in the universe... They do not appeal to some other external authority. There is nothing else that they can appeal to other than themselves. But as believers, we do not put our brains in neutral. We do not park our cognitive function and just believe something in spite of all evidence. That there is evidence that relates to the Scripture as the Word of God and the truth of God... And so we need to evaluate that evidence and look at it. This does not, is not to prove Scripture is true, but it is evidence that it is, is the truth and the Word of God. In 1809, Napoleon, in his conquests, conquered Italy and the Vatican. He exiled the Pope to Avignon, a small town in France that had been the site of what was called the Babylonian captivity of the papacy back in the Middle Ages. And Napoleon transferred the library of the Vatican to France. It took 50 wagons to carry all of that library uh, away. And included in uh, that library was an ancient Greek manuscript that had virtually been forgotten in the Vatican library. It remained in France until 1815, and with the defeat of Napoleon, it was finally returned to the Vatican library where the Roman Catholic authorities kept it under lock and key, hoping that this recently rediscovered treasure would be quickly forgotten. But in 1845, a brilliant young English scholar, a man who had no formal training but was self-taught in Greek and Hebrew as well as other languages, applied for permission to investigate this find in the Vatican Library. His name was Samuel Tregelis. Now, Tregellus was unable to get permission to spend a lot of time with this manuscript. In fact, the Vatican put every obstacle they could in his path. He was not allowed to go into the room with this the, with the, uh, codex for more than three hours, period. He could not take pen or paper with him. And while he looked at it, two clerics stood at his right shoulder and left shoulder, guarding the manuscript, and if he spent more time than they thought he should on any particular passage, they reached over and turned the page. He he was allowed only six hours, I said three, he was allowed only six hours to examine the text. But when he left, he knew that he had seen one of the most remarkable evidences of how God had preserved the Bible for he knew that he had looked upon an early copy of the scriptures that could be dated back to the 4th century A.D. Certainly not one of the original autographs, but perhaps a copy that was only one or two copies removed from the original. It would be over 20 years before this manuscript could be viewed again, and when it was, it was viewed by another remarkable scholar of that era. In fact, one of the real heroes of canonicity, a man, a Prussian count by the name of Constantine von Tischendorf. Tischendorf knew quite a number of languages and was responsible for the rediscovery of several ancient manuscripts. But when he went to the Vatican and they finally gave him permission, he was allowed only 14 days to view the manuscript at three hours a day. Once again, there were clerics standing at his right shoulder and left shoulder to make sure he didn't look too long at any particular passage. But Tischendorf had a photographic memory. And as he paged through the Bible each day for three hours, he memorized the text. And he went home and he wrote it down. And the next year, in 1867, he published his copy, an edition of that manuscript, and this forced the Vatican to finally publish the copy in 1881. That is perhaps one of the more exciting episodes in the story of how we got the Bible and how we can be sure that this Bible that we have is an accurate rendition of the original revelation of God. Tischendorf, as we will see later on, was also involved in a number of other exciting episodes with regard to the Scripture. But we need to remember the important principle that if there is no God, nothing matters. But if there is a God, nothing else matters. Corollary number one to that is, if God has not spoken, we can know nothing because then everything would be relative and there would be no knowledge whatsoever. But if God has spoken, that opens the door to all knowledge. Therefore, nothing in life is more important than knowing the Word of God. Absolutely nothing. Well, let's start off our study of how we got the Bible by understanding some terminology. We talk about the canon of Scripture. Now, this is not some weapon that shoots shells at the enemy it's the word cannon. c-a-n-o-n it's not the camera either for that word derives from the Greek word kanona k-a-n-o-n-a now this word has as its root meaning a rule involving a standard for conduct kanona means a rule or a principle. So it came to be applied to a standard of conduct. As an object, it came to have a technical meaning as an objective rule or standard given by God, and it is inherent in the very concept of inspiration. You see, once you begin to talk about the fact that there are some books that are inspired and some that are not, you immediately invoke a standard that you assume a standard, that there are some that are from God and others that are not. So what is the rule? What is the standard for determining what is canonical and what is not? So that involves a concept of a certain list of books that meets certain tests or rules and by definition is authoritative. This would necessarily, the very concept of of a canon means that it is limited, that there are some books that fit the standard and most others do not. Third thing we need to emphasize in our study of the word canon and canonicity is that the concept of inspiration must precede an understanding of canonicity. What do we mean by inspiration? This is a word that you often hear people talk about when they go to a play. They'll say, well, that writer must have been inspired or that performance was inspired. They might hear uh, a, uh, <clears throat> a symphony by Beethoven. They might hear a sonata by Mozart and say, well, he must have been inspired when he wrote that. That is not what the original Greek has in mind, what it means, uses the word that was translated inspiration. For the Greek word that is translated in- inspiration is thea It looks like this in the Greek. T-H-E-O-P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S It's a compound word. Theop means God. Neustos means spirit or breath. And it means God breathed, emphasizing the origin of Scripture. It is not that man had some great, magnificent, lofty idea about God and so wrote it down. Incidentally, that's the liberal concept of Scripture that Scripture is man's record of his spiritual encounters with God. The Bible claims that it is not man's record of his encounters with God, but it is God's revelation of himself to mankind. So, the term inspiration is defined as God the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, ultimately, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality or personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded without error in any subject it addresses in the original languages of Scripture. The very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now that is a mouthful. I want to say it one more time at least, so that those of you who are trying to get it down can get it down. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded without error in any subject it addresses, in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. This definition emphasizes the fact that it is God the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate author of Scripture. That He supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. He doesn't override their volition, but He over, He controls it in such a way that He pre- prevents the output from having error. That means he doesn't override their own native intelligence. He uses their vocabulary. He uses their own individuality, their own personality, their own literary style, their own personal feelings are all displayed in the text so that how John writes is much different from how Paul writes. We're not saying that God the Holy Spirit dictated to the writers of Scripture, but that He communicated His message to them. It is God-breathed, meaning that the Holy Spirit breathes into man, this is, and the human writer inhales, A for author, and then exhales the scripture, using a breathing metaphor. God the Holy Spirit, superna- so supernaturally directed the human writers of scripture, that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message, that means, that nothing was left out, it's complete, it is sufficient, it's everything we need to know, it is complete and coherent. That means it was communicated to be understood, so that we would know precisely what God's will is. So when you hear people say, well, the Scriptures just aren't clear about that, or I'm not sure we can really understand that, they are in essence blaspheming the Holy Spirit in the process of inspiration. Everything the Scripture addresses was meant to be communicated clearly to us so that we could know these things. So when people bail out and say, well, you know, we just can't be sure, or that's just just kind of uh, difficult to discern from the Scriptures, they are in essence saying that God failed in the clarity of the revelation. It's clear, sometimes we just don't like what it says. It is a complete and coherent message to mankind And it was recorded without error. And that applies only to the original, what the, the technical term is, autographs. That is the original manuscript. When Paul wrote it down, it was without error. Now, when it was copied later, error may have crept in. And that's why there are differences in different manuscripts. But ninety eight percent of these differences apply to spelling changes or a word was left out which another manuscript by comparing them you can see what word was supposed to be there. They're very simple differences like that. None of them, if you examine all the corpus of, of literature, of text that we have, none of them, none of the changes, none none of the textual variants affect any major doctrines whatsoever. So God's complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded without error. See, there's a big difference between starting with a manuscript that is without error and starting with an original that has error, because then you don't know how much has error or not. So we start with a manuscript that has a revelation that has no error whatsoever, and so it's easy through comparison of manuscripts, and that's the science of textual criticism, to recover the original. For example, if I were to dictate to all of you a letter, And we compared all of those 30 or 40 different uh, transcriptions that you took down. Some of you would miss a word here or there. Some of you would misspell a word or two or three or maybe more. But by comparing them all, we could reconstruct the original and what the original was, even if we had lost the original. We could compare all that. That's the science of textual criticism. So it's recorded without error in any subject it addresses. That means that when the Bible addresses something related to creation, something related to the weather, something related to history or the animal kingdom, it is without error. It is true in what it says. It may not say everything there is to say about it, but it is true in what it addresses. And the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. It is not, as we will repeat over and over again, it is not that a bunch of people... Either Jews or Christians got together and said, what books are we going to choose to be the ultimate authority for Christianity? That's not how it happened. The books carried the authority. They were canonical from the instant they were written. Over time, man recognized that authority. But man did not give authority to the Scriptures. It came with authority. The very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.20 gives us the mechanics. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, that is, it's not a product of human authorship. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It did not originate with human volition. But men moved, that is, carried along like a sailboat on the waters by the wind. But men moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God, the ultimate source of God. Now, there's a couple of corollaries to the doctrine of inspiration that I want to emphasize. First of all, the canon, once it is complete, is sufficient. Sufficient means it's enough. Sufficient means you don't need anything else. Sufficient means that God has given us everything we need to know in order to live the spiritual life and to solve whatever problems we may encounter in life. We don't need anything else. It does not need to be added to. So the very concept of inspiration and inerrancy means that the canon, once complete, is sufficient. It's enough. It's all that is necessary and communicates everything man requires to live on earth and to have salvation to grow to spiritual maturity and to have maximum happiness no matter what the circumstances, situations, or suffering. And that's in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. The second corollary is that the Scripture attests to its own authenticity and authority. The Scripture attests to its own authenticity and authority. This is inherent if it is what it claims to be. We saw this same principle at work with Jesus. Here you have Jesus who is called the Word of God, the Logos. Jesus Christ is here. The Pharisees address Him and they say, You have claimed to be deity. Prove it. Now, if Jesus had been a man operating on human viewpoint, Jesus would have said, Okay, over here is John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I was the Messiah. That proves it. Here are some other lines of evidence, I'm going to appeal to those as the ultimate authority. That would be the kind of approach that most of us would take, an appeal to empiricism, an appeal to empirical data. Here's the evidence that proves proves it. But Jesus says, no, I'm not going to appeal to human evidence except by way of concession to you. John the Baptist came and he testified of me. But I have a higher appeal. That higher appeal is... The scriptures, the self-authenticating word of God. Now, that's a very sophisticated argument because if Jesus is who he claims to be, the ultimate authority in the universe, then there is no authority higher than Jesus to which he can appeal. And if Jesus is the logos of God, which is the word of God, and the Bible is the word of God, the logos of God, then the scripture, it must be the ultimate authority and you cannot develop some autonomous standard out here and say the Scripture must fit this autonomous standard and will prove it's true by this independent standard because what that is saying is that there's an authority higher than the Scripture and that's human reason or human experience. And as soon as you start reasoning that way you might as well might as well go become a charismatic because that is the essential methodology of charismatic Christ theology. They... Interpret the Scripture on the basis of experience, not letting the Scripture dictate how to interpret and understand experience. So, the Scripture, Jesus never appealed to a higher authority, and the Scripture doesn't appeal to a higher authority because the Scripture claims to have self-validating authority. Now, the trouble with this is, a person operating on human viewpoint reasoning, which says that empiricism or rationalism is the highest... Court of Appeal, is going to look at this and say, well, that's circular reasoning. You're proving the Scripture by the Scripture. But that's because in human viewpoint, they are saying that human reasoning and human experience is the highest Court of Appeal. And you know what, folks? That's a circular argument, too. You're either going to put faith in human reason and human experience, or you're going to put faith in the Word of God. And the Scripture says that the Word of God is such that it has self-validating authority. Now, what do I mean by that? You get up in the middle of the night and you want to go to the kitchen to get a glass of water. It's dark outside. The shades are pulled. And you can't see your hand in front of your face. And as you are walking out of your bedroom, you didn't close the door all the way. And it's standing halfway open. Now, you're feeling for it. The door, unfortunately... Is halfway open and it's coming right at your nose. All of a sudden, the light comes on. There is self-evident authority in what you see in front of you. And you stop. The Word of God has its own authority. It is light, the Scripture says, absolute light. And it illuminates all that it shines upon. Now, you can reject it or not. And that's the position of the Pharisees. That's the position of atheists, agnostics. It is not that they don't have enough evidence, it's that they reject the evidence for what it is because they are committed to a position of rejection of God. Romans 1, 18, and 19. So the second point here, in terms of corollaries, is that the Scripture attests to its own authenticity and authority. See Luke 16, 29 to 31. The third point is that God guided the process. God guided the process. In his providence, God oversaw the process so that he could bring about that which he intended to bring about, which is a clear and coherent revelation of himself, and understandable revelation of himself to mankind. It is complete and coherent. Part of the doctrine of, this is part of the doctrine of the providence of God. And we must remember that just as the church is the body of Christ and the Scripture is the mind of Christ, so Christ authenticates His own Word. Ultimately, canonicity is determined by Jesus Christ who caused His church to recognize His Word through the witness of God the Holy Spirit. And finally, in terms of a corollary, inherent in the idea of canon and inspiration is the idea of limitation, that some things will be inspired and some things will not. Some will come from God and some will not. So inherent in the idea of canon and inspiration is the idea of limitation, that it will not apply but to a few writings. The New Testament canon was completed in about 95 A.D. and it was recognized through a series of events and we usually look to a formal decision in 397 A.D., as the final recognition of what we now see as the 27 books of the New Testament. We'll see how this took place in a few minutes. This idea of the limitation of the canon and the closing of the canon necessarily excludes any new revelation, any new books by various cults, such as the Book of Mormon, the Book of Science and Scripture by Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, or any other modern revelation. It also excludes the continuation of prophecy, which by its very nature is, is a revelation from God. We must remember that a revelation or a prophecy, by definition, originates with God. God is absolute truth and without error. Therefore, if a prophecy truly does come from God, then it will have the same inherent authority, infallibility, and inerrancy that the Scripture does. That does not mean that it should be inscripturated. There are many revelations God gave the prophets in the Old Testament and gave the apostles in the New Testament that were not inscripturated. But if a revelation comes from God, it will be without error. That's why the test of a prophet in the Old Testament was that his prophecies came true a 100% of the time. If there was one slight minor mistake, then he didn't come from God and the prophet had to be put to death. Because he was lying. Okay. little background on the basic nature of inerrancy and canonicity. Let's look at how we got the Old Testament and the development of the Old Testament canon. Some internal evidence for the Old Testament. The following verses claim inspiration for the Torah. The Old Testament is divided in the Hebrew Bible into three sections. The Torah, which refers to the first five books of the Old Testament which we call the Pentateuch. They were all authored by Moses. And we call it the law. The second major division of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is the Nevi'im. Nevi'im is from the Hebrew word. It's spelled N-E-B-I, I-M. That's the plural. And it means prophets. It was divided because the author was a prophet. You have the uh, former prophets and the latter prophets. And then the third section is called the Ketuvim. It's spelled K-E-T-H-U-B-I-M and it means the writings. To so would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and Daniel as well. So, there are three divisions in the Hebrew Old Testament. The Torah the prophets, and the writings. The following verses claim that the Torah was inspired and authored by God. Deuteronomy 31, through 26 says, And it came about, when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book, until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there, as a witness against you, it is called the covenant of the Lord. That is a synonym for the Torah. Other verses, such as Joshua 1 7 through 8, Joshua 23 6, 1 Kings 2 3, Daniel 9 11, many others claim divine authorship for the Torah. Other verses claim inspiration. For the prophets and the writings, verses such as uh, Joshua 6:26, compared with 1 Kings 16:34; Joshua 6:26 compared with 1 Kings 16:34; Joshua 24:29 to 33, compared with Judges 2:8 through 9, and Daniel 9:2 compared to Jeremiah 25:11 and 12. So the Old Testament clearly claimed for itself divine authorship. Now the major question that we must ask when we come to the Old Testament, and I'm sure this is a question that some of you have faced, is how was canonicity determined and what is the exact extent of the canon? How is canonicity determined and what is the extent of the canon? Whose canon are we going to appeal to? For you see the Protestants have one canon, Roman Catholics have another canon. They include a group of books called the Apocrypha. The Greek Orthodox have a slightly different canon yet and so does the Syriac Church, which is right. The basic question here is, should the Old Testament be restricted to the 39 books we have in the English Old Testament, in the Protestant Old Testament, or should it include the Apocrypha and maybe one or two other books, a couple of variations. What is the evidence say what does history say well first of all we're just going to walk our way through some recent discoveries to to build a case first of all we'll look at the discoveries of Qumran now Qumran is a wadi a wadi is sort of a dried up stream bed where when you have uh, uh, hard rains in the desert you'll have a flash flood go through that little stream bed and Qumran is a wadi down near the Dead Sea in 1947 a a Bedouin shepherd discovered in a cave in the cliffs along Wadi Qumran a whole series of very ancient pottery jars that were stuffed full of ancient parchments. And those that find was incredible because it took the Old Testament back to about 200 B.C. to uh, around 100 AD there were quite a number of manuscripts there this um, the Qumran area was the location of a Jewish sect called the Essenes that's spelled like this E-S-S-E-N-E-S now they're not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament but they they flourished they were an ascetic group that lived down in the Dead Sea area uh, at the time of Christ they were very strict in their observance of the law And their writings show that they had a a tremendous respect for the Scriptures and they were looking for a teacher of righteousness to appear. They were deeply concerned with understanding the Old Testament Scriptures and hundreds, over 500 scrolls were found in those caves at Qumran. What they tell us is that the Old Testament, the transmission of the Old Testament has been incredibly accurate because up until that time, The oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had was from about 895 AD. So, what this does is push our oldest manuscript of the Old Testament back from roughly 900 AD back to 200 BC, 1100 years. And what we found was, for example, in the um, Isaiah manuscript, there were very few differences. When the St. Mark's Isaiah scroll was compared with the Masoretic text, and that's the official text that underlies our Old Testament, the Masoretic text, when there was a comparison, there were over 200 differences were discovered. But when the editors of the Revised Standard Version examined all of these and weighed all of these textual variants, they were surprised. Now, this is an important thing because the editors of the RSV were very liberal in their theological orientation. And so they didn't trust the Masoretic text very well to begin with. They thought a lot of errors had crept into the transmission of the text and there were various problems with the Masoretic text. And when these liberal editors of the Old Testament RSV made this comparison between the Masoretic text and the Qumran scroll of Isaiah, they rejected, of these 200 differences... They rejected 180 of them. They, furthermore, they decided after examining the Qumran scroll of Isaiah that the, that the text of the Masoretic text was a superior text to that of Qumran. And Miller Burroughs, who was one of the experts who uh, was on the Old Testament Translating Committee for the RSV, and wrote several books on the Dead Sea Scrolls, later said that of the, excuse me, there were only 13, there were 187 that were rejected. They accepted 13 changes. And of those 13 changes, Miller Burroughs later wrote that he wished they had not accepted most of them. He didn't give a number. In other words, what their evidence, and this comes from a group that doubted the accuracy of the Masoretic text, that after comparing a document 12 of Isaiah 1200 years earlier, they said the Masoretic text is a far superior text than the one we just found, because the the way the Masoretes honored the text, they counted every letter on every page and every scroll. They knew the first letter, last letter, middle letter. They knew the first letter of every line. If anybody made a mistake, that scroll was buried. If any scroll became worn or used then it was buried. That's why we don't have uh, scrolls older than 900 A.D. It's because if it got worn, they buried it. They honored it, had a tremendous, uh, had a very high view of the text, and did not want to have, and, and controlled its, its copying so that no errors could possibly creep in to the text. So the value of Qumran is that of the 500 plus texts found at Qumran, 175 are related to biblical texts. What we call the Old Testament text. That what we have in our English Bible is 39 books. All of the Old Testament books that we have are represented in Qumran, except for Esther. Commentaries. They wrote commentaries on the Old Testament books, but their commentaries were only written on books in our Old Testament canon. They didn't write any commentaries on the apocryphal books, which were present, but they didn't write commentaries on them. They didn't write commentaries on any disputed books or any non-canonical books. They only wrote commentaries on the books that the Jews claim and that we claim are the 39 books of the Old Testament. So the evidence from Qumran is that while they were aware of the apocryphal literature, and by the way, the apocryphal literature only relates to events that occurred between the Old and the New Testament. So while they looked at that... uh, while they were aware of the apocryphal literature, they did not treat it as canonical. Twenty of the thirty-nine Old Testament books were quoted by the Essenes as Scripture. So this validates the fact that by around 200 B.C., they, they had a concept of an Old Testament canon and that what was from God and what was not from God. Let's look at some other evidence. During this time, this is the age of the diaspora, when the Jews were scattered throughout, after the, they went out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 586 B.C. There were three basic communities. Here's the Mediterranean. Here you have Israel here on the coast. They were taken to Babylon, so you had one large Jewish community in Babylon. You had another Jewish community here in Palestine, and then you had another Jewish community here in Egypt. Now, these were independent communities. They did not have a lot of cross-communication. They didn't email back and forth, and they didn't know what each other was doing. And what happened, in, in each of these communities, they had the same identical canon. They came to the same conclusion. that incorporated what we would say are 39 books. The Hebrew canon only has 22 books because they treat the minor prophets, the 12, as one book. Lamentations is part of Jeremiah. Ruth is part of Judges and they don't divide up like First and Second Kings. That's just kings. They don't have 1 and 2 Samuel. They just have Samuel. So, it's, their 22 books are identical to our 39 books. First of all, there's an apocryphal book called Ecclesiasticus, similar to Ecclesiastes, but a little different. Ecclesiasticus. This was written about 125 B.C., the author is one Jeshua or Joshua, the son of Sirach, and he states that at the time when his grandfather lived, which would be about 180 BC, there was a threefold division of the canon, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and that the canon was closed. So by 180 BC, he gives evidence that the canon is closed and there is no more revelation. In 164 B.C., Judas Maccabeus compiled a list of canonical books and recognized that the gift of prophecy had ceased. The Babylonian Talmud. Now, it's hard to date the Babylonian Talmud because it was written about 200 A.D., but it, has, uh, it reports oral tradition that goes back for many centuries. But in Baba Batra 14b, and that's spelled, looks like this, Baba Batra. In English, 14b there's a reference again to a threefold division of the Old Testament. So that at least by the time of Christ, this gives evidence that there's a threefold division. Now, what we have here is that Ecclesiasticus is written by a Palestinian, Baba Batra is from the Babylonian Talmud, and then we have Philo, who was a Jew who lived about the time of Christ, 40 A.D. in Egypt, and in the writings of Philo. He mentions the same threefold division of the law, the writings, and the prophets. Then there's Josephus, another Palestinian Jew who lives between 37 to 100 AD. and in his writing, Contra Appion, which means against Appion. Appion was, a, was a, a Gentile who had written against the Jews. Josephus argues that the Jews had a collection of authoritative literature that was kept in the temple. This indicates a closed canon, and, it, and he refers to 22 books in their canon. Now, why have I gone to the trouble of all this? Because at some point, you're going to read somebody, you're going to hear somebody, you're going to talk to somebody, and they're going to question, well, the Old Testament was really, there was all these different books, and the Jews decided that they would make these authoritative, and it occurred in 90 A.D. at the Council of Yamnia. Problem, 70 AD, Israel goes out under the fifth cycle of discipline when the Romans destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple. So, after 70 AD, there can be no official Judaistic convocation. So, the Council of Yamnia did not have an official status within Judaism. Secondly, it was just a group of scholars who met as they usually did and just argued about some things. And there had always been a question raised about the inclusion of Esther, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament canon. They all continued to include it, but every time they got together, they wanted to debate it because it was just one of those fun things that theologians wanted to debate. But every time they debated it, they concluded that those three books were to remain in the Old Testament canon. So, the Council of Jamnia is not a formal council and it does not impose, it does not determine the Old Testament canon because what we have seen, there is evidence, clear evidence, that by 200 B.C. the Jews recognized that the canon was closed. Furthermore, Jesus in the New Testament affirms the same 24 book canon and the threefold division. In Luke 24:44, Jesus said, These are my words, which I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, when they organized in the table of contents, when you looked at the Ketuvim, the first book in the Ketuvim was Psalms. So, the Ketuvim, the writings, were often called the Psalms. So Jesus recognizes that same threefold division. Jesus doesn't have any debate over the extent of the Old Testament canon. Furthermore, in Matthew 23:35, when Jesus is in another confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus says that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So he traces their rejection of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Now what is Jesus doing here? Is his orientation temporal or is it canonical? Well, Abel, of course, was murdered by Cain near the creation right after the fall. Zechariah dies and is murdered in about 8.25. The passage that this is referring to is in 2 Chronicles 24, 20-21. Zechariah is killed about 8.25, but he's not the last prophet killed in the Old Testament. The last prophet killed in the Old Testament is Uriah, who's killed in 600 B.C., and that's recorded in Jeremiah 26.23. But Jesus isn't thinking in terms of a timeline. Jesus is thinking like a Jew. And he's thinking in terms of the Jewish canon. Because the way the Jewish Old Testament is organized is different from ours. The first book in the Jewish Old Testament is Genesis. The last book is 2 Chronicles. The last thing that happens in 2 Chronicles is that Zechariah is murdered. So Jesus is saying, from Abraham... first book in the Old Testament to the last book. And that shows that Jesus' canon that He's appealing to in terms of the Old Testament is identical to the Jewish canon that's always been accepted from at least 200 B.C. Furthermore, New Testament writers never question the extent or content of the Jewish canon. They use the term Scripture, Holy Scripture, again and again. And by using the term, the Scripture says... That implies that there are certain books that are recognized as Scripture and certain others that aren't. In other words, they recognize a closed Old Testament canon. The New Testament includes 250 Old Testament quotes. None are from any of the disputed books in the Apocrypha. Only Esther, the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes are not quoted in the New Testament. All the others are, but they never quote from Baruch. They never quote from... They never quote from uh, Maccabees or Esdras or any of the apocryphal books. Furthermore, the church fathers only accepted the 39 books that we accept as authoritative. Augustine, or Augustine as some call him, liked the apocrypha, thought there was a lot of helpful information there, but did not consider it authoritative. Neither did Jerome, who was the translator of the Latin Vulgate, but Jerome included them in the translation of the Vulgate because he thought it was helpful information, but he did not think they were canonical. That's how it got into the Roman Catholic Bible. There were others, many others. Uh, Raphinius was another uh, <coughs> church father who rejected the Apocrypha as authoritative. So why was it included? Well... Jerome and Augustine and other church fathers believed it was informative, had value historically, so they translated it and included it in in the Latin Vulgate, but it was never considered canonical until the Council of Trent after the Protestant Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church reacted to Luther's claim that certain books and certain books alone were part of the Scripture. So in reaction to Luther... They included the Apocrypha, but even Cardinal Cajetan, who was Luther's primary opponent in, the Roman, in his debates in the Roman Catholic Church, even Cajetan rejected the authority of the Apocrypha. The conclusion is that by the early 2nd century B.C., the Jews considered the canon to have been closed and to have included only 22 books, which are our 39 books, and that the gift of prophecy had temporarily ceased And they never included or even disputed the inclusion of the Apocrypha in their canon. So the evidence is clear that the books that are disputed in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church, and the Syriac Church, should not be and should never have been included as part of the Word of God. Now what's the criteria for including books as canonical? First of all, in the Old Testament, they were authorized by a prophet. The book either was known to have been written by a prophet or was written under the authority of a prophet. They had schools, not unlike our seminaries, but they were schools of prophets. Samuel refers to them, Kings refers to them. It was authorized by a prophet or written by a prophet. Secondly, internal evidence. Was the message of the book internally consistent? And did it measure up to the standards of Scripture? If there was prophecy that that should have been fulfilled or was fulfilled, was it fulfilled accurately? Remember, books are canonical not because Israel determined them to be, but because they were recognized as such from their very writing and down through the ages. And third, there was an analysis of external evidence. Was the message of the book consistent with other books and were the prophecies fulfilled to the very letter? That's the Old Testament canon. Now, the New Testament canon. The New Testament books were all written between A.D. 40 and... From A.D. 40 to about A.D. 95. From James to Revelation. But no attempt was made during the life of the apostles to collect them all together or to recognize an authoritative canon. This did not occur for another hundred years. Why was that? They all expected Jesus to return at any moment. So they saw no need to try to collect a canon. Jesus is going to be back next week or in another month, so why go to the effort? What are the factors that led to canonization? Well, first of all, the very first attempt to say that there was a New Testament canon was by a heretic named Marcion. Marcion was a an was a, uh, anti-Semite. He hated the Jews, so he had a collection of New Testament books that had, contained a heavily edited version of Luke and only ten of Paul's epistles. Any book that said anything positive about the Jews was immediately discarded. Well, it was pretty obvious that Marcion was a heretic, but he went around saying that there were... 11 books that should be included in the canon, so that forced the church to respond. Well, what books should be in the canon? And this is usually the case in church history that truth is clarified because someone comes up with a false teaching. And so it forces thinkers to analyze the data and the doctrine and then develop it. So there were attempts by heretics to arrange an authoritative collection. That was one factor. Another factor was that there was another group The Montanists, followers of a former Phrygian priest by the name of Montanus, who believed that the Holy Spirit was still giving revelation, much like modern charismatics. And so, the Montanists were wanting to add. They were adding more things to the New Testament. So, on the one hand, Marcion is taking out his razor blade like a modern liberal and cutting away certain passages of Scripture. And Montanus is adding, continually adding. So, the church had to stop and say, okay... Christians had to say, what really is the Bible? This was further emphasized by AD 300 in the edict by the Emperor Diocletian, which ordered the burning of all sacred Christian writings. Now, if some soldier, get a centurion come and knock on your door, and it's your life or Romans, you might give up your life for the book of Romans if you're in fellowship and understand the dynamics. But would you give up your life to possess a copy of the Shepherd of Hermas or First Clement or the Epistle of Barnabas? Well, if the issue is your life or a sacred writing, you have to make sure that what you're giving your life for is indeed canonical. So that really put the screws to the church to determine and to make some final decision as to what was sacred, what was canonical, and what was not. Furthermore, the content of the New Testament validated its own authority and as different churches collected different writings, the need for a canon was realized. For example, Corinth might have eight or ten books, but they might not be the same eight or ten that, that Ephesus ended up with. There might be some overlap, and might be some differences, so they had to decide what was going to be authoritative, what they recognized as authoritative and what was not. And finally, the use of apostolic writings in worship. They had to decide what they would use in worship, what they would read in worship, and what would not. Because there were other writings that could have been attributed to to people that were instrumental in founding churches. For example, the Epistle of Barnabas. There was um, First Clement. Clement was a pastor of a church in Rome. And others that were written at that time that were very helpful. And they had certain devotional value, just as we would read certain Christian books today, but you had to decide, okay, which of these were truly uh, God-breathed and which were not. So they went through a period of collection that can be divided into three periods. First of all, the period of separate circulation from 70 to 170 A.D., from the closing of the canon for about that first hundred years, the individual books were being circulated. Some epistles we know of, such as Colossians and Ephesians, were written with the express purpose that they would be circulated among churches in the vicinity. Others would be shared by um, churches in close proximity, such as Corinth, Thessalonica, and Philippi. But other epistles were written to individuals, like Timothy, Titus. These were written to individuals, 2 John, 3 John, and so they didn't have as wide a circulation or were as well-known. Other books, like Hebrews, had a unique problem. Hebrews didn't have a known author. So, people weren't sure about Hebrews. So, during this period of separate circulation, these New Testament books circulated, but they were just gradually beginning to collect them together as a, a canon. Clement of Rome mentions at least eight New Testament books in his epistles. Ignatius cites about seven books. Polycarp mentions about 15. And Irenaeus, about 185, which is a little after this period, mentions 21. And Hippolytus mentions 22. So you see there's a growing recognition of the extent of the canon. During this time, the books that were questioned were Hebrews, because the author is unknown, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Revelation. Revelation was always questioned because there was a curse at the end, that if you added to it or took away from it, then your eternal destiny was, was suspect. And so people didn't like that, so they didn't want to mess with Revelation. The next period is from 170 to 303, which is a period of separation, when they were separating out certain books as canonical and others as non-canonical. We have a collection called the Muratorian Canon from AD 170, which includes all of the New Testament except Hebrews, James, and 1st and 2nd Peter. The old Syriac version dates from this time and excludes only 2nd Peter. 2nd and 3rd John, Jude and Revelation. And the old Latin version from 200 excludes 1st and 2nd Peter, James and Hebrews. So you see it's the same basic books that are always questions and that has to do with their authorship and a couple of other factors they hadn't circulated and weren't quite as well known. But by the Council of Laodicea in 363, the present collection of 27 is mentioned. Athanasius, who's the great Bishop of Alexandria mentions these mentions our 27 in his Easter letter of 367. And these are finally recognized uh, by the local uh, council of Hippo in 393 and the third senate of Carthage in 397. So the final canon is clearly recognized by 393. What was the criteria for determining New Testament canonicity? Apostolic authorship or apostolic authority. Mark was not an apostle, but he was the associate of Peter. So that what Mark wrote was clearly what Peter told him. Uh, James was not an apostle, but James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And during those early years, Peter and John were still in Jerusalem. And when James wrote that, he wrote it under the authority of Peter and John. So... The New Testament books had apostolic authority. Secondly, they were the books that were accepted by the churches. There's a unanimity of opinion. There are about five books that are usually accepted, but with a little bit of a question mark. But at least 22 were never doubted. The others were questioned, but there are no other books that were ever considered beyond our 27. So we can have confidence, maximum confidence, that we have the Word of God in our 27 New Testament books. Third, there is an internal witness. The books are self-authenticating. If you read our New Testament and you compare that to any of these other books that were written at that time, like the Shepherd of Hermas or uh, 1 Clement or the Epistle to Barnabas or the Didache or any of the others, there is a remarkable difference in their content and in their tone. So that is the internal witness. They are self-authenticating. But in the final analysis, it is the providence of Christ and his oversight for his church, that through the Spirit of God, he directs the church in the collection of the canon. Now, we know that the New Testament books are reliable. We have more ancient copies of the New Testament than of any other ancient literature. For example, there are over 5,300 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Add to that over 10,000 Latin copies of the Latin Vulgate, and at least 9,300 other early versions of the Greek New Testament. Beyond that, there are literally thousands of quotations in church fathers and what are called lectionaries, which is just scripture readings that were read in the meeting of the church, just little scraps with a paper, a papyrus with a few verses on it. We have thousands of those to compare the New Testament to. In comparison, the Iliad by Homer has only 643 manuscripts that still survive, and the oldest complete preserved text dates from the 1200s. We have scraps of the New Testament that go back to about 117 AD. But the oldest document we have of Homer goes back to the 13th century. So that gives a little bit of a clue in comparison about the reliability of New Testament documents. Caesar's Gaelic War, which was written between 58 and 50 B.C., has only nine or ten good comp- extant copies, and the oldest is some 900 years later than Caesar's time of writing. Of the 142 books that were written by the Roman historian Livy, who lived about the time of Christ a little earlier, Only 35 of those 142 survive, and these are known to us from only 20 manuscripts of any consequence. And only one of those is as old as the 4th century. Of the 14 books of Tacitus, only four and a half survive. The history of Thucydides is known to us from only 8 manuscripts. The earliest belongs to about the 1st century A.D. The same is true of Herodotus. Yet, no classical scholar would ever entertain an argument about the authenticity of Herodotus, Thucydides, Homer, or Caesar. And yet, we have all these thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament and liberal theologians are constantly calling us to question about their veracity. Now, how did we get our Bible, our English Bible? I want to wrap up with this. And just go over it quickly. Most people always ask, well, how do we know about our English Bible? Where did it come from? Before Tyndale, the morning star of the Revo- of the Reformation was, was uh, Wycliffe. Wycliffe was the first to translate the entire Bible into the English language. And then William Tyndale came along about the time of the Reformation. And he was shut down in England from translating the... Uh, bible into english and he had to flee to germany in order to complete his translation and there right after he got it completed he was arrested and in 1535 or 1536 he was strangled to death and then burned at the stake the last thing he said was may god open the eyes of the king of england That was his final prayer. That prayer was answered in virtue by his own translation because as it was shipped to England, even though the Bishop of London bought up almost every copy he could and burned it, uh, many other copies did make it into England and they created a thirst and hunger to have the Bible in their own language. One of his assistants, Miles Coverdale, took his New Testament translation and part of his Old Testament translation and then Coverdale translated part of the Latin Vulgate Old Testament to give a complete Bible. The Coverdale Bible was written in 1535, but most of it was Tyndale's. Another associate, uh, by the name of uh, John Matthews, it was a pseudonym for John Rogers, who was also an assistant of Tyndale's, published another edition of Tyndale's New Testament in 1537. And then Coverdale, who worked well with the authorities, got the permission of the King of England, Henry VIII, to translate a Bible. It was called the Great Bible because it was very large and and, uh, it was the first English translation authorized by Henry VIII. It came out in 1539. It was basically Coverdale's Bible with a few changes and and he took out some of the notes. They put notes in the margins that were very anti-Catholic. So they got rid of the notes. But it was basically Coverdale's translation. And uh, And then Cranmer, who was the archbishop... Uh, edited that again, put an opening letter authorizing its, uh, its reading for the English people. That went through eight editions. It was very popular. That came out in 1540. Then when Mary Tudor, who was called Bloody Mary, went to the uh, uh, throne after Henry VIII died, his son Edward became king. Edward was a Protestant. And, and under Edward, for about six years, Protestant theology flourished in England. But when he died, Mary took the throne. Mary was Roman Catholic. She was known as Bloody Mary in history because she had so many Protestants burned at the stake. And under Bloody Mary, Cranmer himself was burned at the stake, the archbishop. Uh, many other key players in the English Reformation were burned at the stake by Mary. And many others fled to Geneva where they went to a seminary there with, and under Calvin. And they translated the Geneva Bible, which was the main Bible of Shakespeare, of Queen Elizabeth, and in fact, it was the Bible that uh, King James grew up on, but he didn't like it because of some of the marginal notes. So he finally authorized another translation, which we know as the King James Version. It was never officially authorized, though. It's called an authorized version, but it's neither authorized nor version. But we call it the authorized version of 1611. It's based on the Textus Receptus, which is eight ancient Greek manuscripts that was edited by Erasmus, who was one of Luther's foes. Erasmus edited it put together a Greek New Testament, and that was the basis for the King James Version. There's a big debate, King James versus others, and there's some people that think the King James only. If it was good enough for Paul, it was good enough for me. But the English language, language didn't even exist at the time of Paul in fact the king james version was revised in 1629 1638 1653 1701 1762 1769 and 1841 and many other changes have uh, an edit editorial changes have been made in fact over 100,000 changes have been made so people who claim that we want the king james only you need to ask which king james on the basis of the textus receptus which is the greek uh, text underlying the King James Version. A new King James translation or revision was accomplished in 1979, which is quite good and is based on, on a little better. They did take into account a few of the discoveries that have come along uh, recently, but the debate is what the majority text versus older documents. The King James Version came out in 1611. It's based on the TR, the Texas Receptus. Now, in the 18th century, several ancient New Testament documents were found. I referred to Vaticanus earlier. Tischendorf was traveling throughout Egypt looking for ancient documents, and he was spending the night on Mount Sinai. Well, he was up on Mount Sinai in St. Catherine's Monastery. It was dark at night, cold in the monastery. So he decided to light his, the fire in his room. Now, there was a large waste basket there that was filled with papyrus. He reached in, pulled out a piece of papyrus, which was there to light the fire with, and he lit it. And as the flames came up, it illuminated the writing on the papyrus. Now, Tischendorf knew nine languages. Tischendorf was brilliant, and he immediately recognized that he had an ancient manuscript of the Greek Testament, of the Old Testament, excuse me, of the Septuagint, burning in his hand. So he blew it out, lit a fire by some other means, and went to the monks and he collected uh, uh, several other baskets full of this manuscript, and it turned out to be a very ancient copy of the Greek Septuagint. Later, he went back to St. Catherine's, and he had published this, this uh, Greek Septuagint, and he brought a copy of it to the steward of the monastery. And the steward of the monastery said, oh, well, I have my own copy of this. And he went back into his closet, and he pulled out an ancient codex that was wrapped in red cloth, And when he opened it up and gave it to Tischendorf, Tischendorf discovered a 4th century A.D. complete Bible that had been kept under wraps there. He was there under the authority of the Russian Tsar, so he bought it. It was a very complicated story, but eventually, after the communists took over in Russia, the communists had no need for an ancient manuscript of the Bible, so they sold it to England, and it now resides in the British uh, Museum. So there are several ancient documents of the New Testament, all come from North Africa, from the Egyptian area, and so there's a major conflict. Do we go with older documents, or do we go with the majority of documents? And there's many problems with the text that underlies the King James Version, but there are many problems that underlie the Egyptian text, the Alexandrian text of these ancient documents. But since the discovery of those documents, that Those documents underlie all the recent translations. The English Revised Translation in 1881 was a revision of the King James, but it utilized all these newer documents. Then the Americans didn't like some of the English terms and the English um, idioms, so they came out with the American Standard Bible of 1901. In 1952, there was a revision of the English Revised Standard of the English Revised Version of 1801, and that's what is known as our Revised Standard Bible. It was dominated by a lot of liberal theology, and no translation has been greeted with more negative press than the RSV. In fact, it was boycotted by evangelicals because they, instead of translating, uh, I think it's in Isaiah, where it says that a virgin will conceive, in Isaiah 9 they said a young woman will conceive. And so all the conservatives were up in arms, that they were doing away with the uh, virgin birth. The New American Standard Bible is a revision of the American Standard Bible, or Standard Version of 1901, and it is a much more literal translation. I think it's one of the best to study by because of the way it treats the, the, the translation theory behind it. It's much more word-for-word word than the New International Version. The New International Version came out in 1979. Many of the scholars on the translating committee there were from men from Dallas Seminary. But they had more of an idiomatic translation. And so it's looser. It's more interpretive. And there are places in the NIV that are, I just think, are terrible. For example, in 1 Corinthians 3.1, where it says, uses the word carnal in the Old King James. And the Greek word is sarkikos, which means fleshly. And it's translated fleshly in the New American Standard. The uh, translator of the NIV made an interpretive decision and translated it worldly. Well, sarkikos doesn't have anything to do with worldliness. It has to do with the flesh. That's the basic meaning. So it's an interpretive translation. So I have several problems with the NIV even though it, it reads better and is more in, in a more updated English and is less stilted than the uh, New American Standard, I still recommend the New American Standard. There are other translations. It's been real popular to come up with new translations lately, and study Bibles proliferate. But I would recommend basically a Ryrie study Bible. I think he's revised his study Bible and use of a New American Standard. But an NIV also helps. You You can read that. Um, As we go through some things we're going to discover in John in the next couple of weeks, we'll get into the textual difference between the King James and the modern translations and see how that affects things, and we don't have time for that now. But this is how we got the Bible, so we can trust it. There's a rich tradition of transmission and its accuracy, and it has been preserved remarkably throughout the years, and even when we discover ancient manuscripts, even though there might be a, a variant here and a variant there, the... It's 99% the same, which gives us great confidence that the Word of God has been preserved and it is absolute truth and we can rely upon it. Remember, if God doesn't exist, nothing matters. If God does exist, then nothing else matters. And if God has not spoken, then we can't know anything. But because God has spoken, we have the basis for understanding everything. So nothing is more important for us than to know The Word of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word today because it is Your Word that tells us authoritatively how we can have a relationship with You. That that relationship is based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There He died as our substitute. He paid the price for sins, And because of that, we can have eternal life simply by trusting in Him. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their salvation, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that decision that determines their eternal destiny. All they have to do is tell you through silent prayer that they believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. It's very simple. It's a free gift. Nothing else is involved. Now, Father, we pray that our confidence might be strengthened by our understanding of your word and the transmission of your word because we know that we have your word accurately given to us in the Scriptures. And that we can rely completely and exclusively upon your word because it is the absolute truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.